This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome to another episode of Chronicles Magazine Podcast. I'm delighted to be talking with Paul Gottfried. Today, we are talking about Thomas Hobbes, who is either legendary or infamous or famous, depending on your perspective and your interpretation of Hobbes. But I know Paul, especially through Carl Schmitt, has been influenced by Hobbes. And um, there's a lot of different perspectives and interpretations of Hobbes. And I wanted to get Paul's take on some of these themes. But before we Get started on Hobbes. I I wanted to ask him about Napoleon. There was the release of a trailer for a new um, movie or show. I, I can't. Is it a series or a movie? I don't know if you've seen it um, on Napoleon. And so that got the Twitter world talking about Napoleon. And I was I was intrigued by the fact that there is a variety of different takes. You know, people on the right are either pro Napoleon or against Napoleon for various reasons. He's a really polarizing figure. And I thought that was fascinating. So I asked people, uh, I told people that I would be getting your take on him and I had them guess it was about 50, 50. Some of them said that you were anti uh, Napoleon. Some said that you were pro Napoleon. And most people just said it's Paul Gottfried. He's going to have a very nuanced take on Napoleon. So um, <laughs> let me ask you, what do you, what do you think of Napoleon? Well, you know, if I were a French Patriot, I might admire him because uh, you know, he, he sort of overshadows, sort of like de Gaulle, or he um, sort of overshadows French history. And there is a whole Bonapartist tradition, uh, kind of patriotic, progressive, but also authoritarian tradition in German, rather in French politics in the 19th century. And eventually Bonapartism becomes identified, uh, especially during the Third Republic, with uh, authoritarian uh, uh, nationalism. Uh, although it, although Bonapartism did not start out that way, it was progressive and seen as a, in some ways, as a continuation of the French Revolution. Um, having said what my views would be as a French patriot, you know, speaking as a general historian, looking at the effects of the Napoleonic Wars, um, I am not a fan of his. I think what one has to take into account the fact that his political career resulted in uh, at least a million deaths, maybe more. Uh, and in some ways, this is sort of the, the culmination of the French Revolution, mm. which starts international, kind of international conflagration from, the, from 1793 on. Uh, and it's sort of hard to overlook this aspect of Napoleon, though there are many things about him that I do admire. I mean, his own career, his genius, uh, his... Um, uh, his very expressive speech, he gave magnificent orations. Um, he, he was somebody who really does move from sort of rags to riches. Uh, he has a kind of Italian family life because uh, the, uh, the Corsicans were really Italians and his family were Italian. And he spoke Italian. So I'm looking at of course, his original name was Bonaparte. He was an Italian. And uh, his early, his mother, Letizia, wrote to the family in Italian. So that there's there, there's much about his life that I, you know, that I find attractive, um, and there's a certain kind of imperial symbolism, art form, uh, which I admire. And the Code of Napoleon has is which which the, the legal codification that comes about as a result of his rule, um, I think is on the whole uh, beneficial. 
but I cannot rule out the fact that uh, uh, the the price for his appetite, uh, imperial appetite, uh, was enormous. Uh, and one cannot uh, uh, underestimate the tremendous cost that was lost. Of course, if I were Hegelian, you know, I would see him, what, what did Hegel say about him, that he was the world spirit on horseback or something like that. But I, um, uh, I'm i probably closer to Jakob Borchardt, who had a very negative view of him because of the, uh, the catastrophic military uh, and, and human consequences of his, um, uh, of his rule and attempts to conquer Europe. <laughs> Do you think he attempted to repudiate the Jacobin Revolution or consolidate it? <clears throat> I think he did both. I think it's sort of part of his political genius. I mean, he always said that, uh, je suis la révolution, I am the revolution. But at the same time, you know, he obviously creates an empire, something much to the dissatisfaction, of course, of, of Beethoven, remember, who tore up the, the dedication for um, his own his own music, um, his own concerto after uh, Napoleon had himself declared emperor. Um, so I, I think, and, and then he does try to hobnob with the royal families of Europe. He puts aside his wife, Josephine, and then marries Marie Louisa, who was a Habsburg in 1809, uh, uh, it was in 1809 to 1810. So he, 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 he does try to sort of join the aristocracy as an outsider. Mm. Um, but at the same time, some of the changes of the revolution, he continues. I mean, um, he gets rid of the red price, get rid of the remnants of serfdom, feudalism. He occupies the Rhineland, other areas. He tries to modernize this. Um, he declares religious freedom. Um, Jews who had been highly restricted before this are allowed to have equal rights under Napoleon. But religious mind, Christian religious minorities gain them as well. Um, in some of the German principalities. So uh, in that respect, he sort of continues the positive legacy of the French Revolution. But then one also has to deal with all the negativity, <laughs> I mean, the, the wars, the imposition of his own incompetent family as rulers in Spain and um, in, in Holland and other places, um, uh, uh, none of which was probably welcome to these subjects Mm -hmm. uh, because they were incompetent and they basically, and, and then of course he um, uh, uh, raises entire armies um, in areas that he's conquered like Bavaria, he controls their politics. There's over 30,000 Bavarians who die in Napoleon's attempt, you know, to take over Russia, <laughs> Russia. Uh, so the, 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 these are, are simply, you know, forcibly conscripted armies he's taking from all over Europe. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and many of those soldiers never return home. Probably most of them don't. Mm -hmm. So I, I think one, one has to take this into account in providing a uh, sort of a balanced assessment of his rule. How would you compare him to someone like Oliver Cromwell? Because Cromwell was seen as someone who was repudiating, you know, traditional uh, England. And, mm -hmm. and of course, Napoleon was someone who had no interest in restoring, you know, the French aristocracy. So how would you compare those two? They seem to be on the same trajectory. Well, I don't know. I, of, of course, they, they were for Thomas Carlyle, right, who, who wrote in both Napoleon and Cromwell and Frederick the Great. Mm -hmm. um, I am much more sympathetic to Cromwell. I have to admit, I have a probably a weakness for the Puritans, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, in the case of Cromwell, he is a, he is a patriot. He's a patriotic uh, Englishman who does not have any imperial pretensions. 
uh, lives mm. like you know a simple country gentleman. Um, now, of course, if I were an Irishman, I probably would not like him very much because of <laughs> right. the the devastation that he and his son-in-law uh, Henry Ireton create in you know re reconquering Ireland. Although I should point out, he was not any nastier in dealing with the Irish than were the English monarchists. Right. I mean, Charles I also tried to go Ireland and Elizabeth I, others wage bloody wars against the Irish. So Cromwell was not the first to do this. But I think he is a genuine patriot mm -hmm. who has very, very limited ambitions for himself, although he mistakenly thinks his son Richard would be a, a fit successor. So I have to say I, I am I'm much more uh, favorably predisposed to Cromwell than I am to Napoleon, who is running all over Europe trying to conquer people. Mm -hmm. So um, let's let's use that to segue into our topic today, which is you know Thomas Hobbes. Do you think <laughs> um, do you think Cromwell was more authentically Hobbesian than Napoleon? I think he was, although as as you know, uh, Thomas Hobbes. Does not side with uh, with Cromwell. He sides with the with the the he's, right. he's the tutor, mm -hmm. you know, to the future Charles II. He goes with him into exile and lives in drafty Dutch castles. It was in France for a while, and then then he goes back to England, and even adds uh, material to Leviathan that shows he's open to representative government, which is what Cromwell pretended to be running. Actually, it was a military dictatorship. Mm -hmm. um so uh he he you, you you would think that cromwell would be you know somebody after his own heart but um in in effect he's not i mean he's uh uh he he goes back to england he can't stand you know living in drafty castles and so forth uh and he lives under cromwell for a few years but i don't think there's any love lost between them mm-hmm mm -hmm. Okay, so Thomas Hobbes. Um, let's let's start with this. So, well, well actually, I, I'm getting this topic, you know, mostly through your book on Carl Schmidt. You have mm -hmm. a chapter on, you know, what you term right. the Hobbesian Revolution. Um, Schmidt was highly influenced by Hobbes, and Hobbes is someone that um, you know is is the the subject of of vastly different interpretations. What are the two? lines of a, different types of interpretation of Hobbes. You know, some people see him as sort of a proto-liberal, a materialist, mm -hmm. um, someone who just operates politically on the basis of these new materialist scientific doctrines mm -hmm. and someone who has basically repudiated, uh, you know, medieval transcendent thinking. Yeah, I, I, there's a very famous biography of Hobbes by the German sociologist Ferdinand Tönnies, uh, which depicts Hobbes as a great modernist. Um, you know, and, and Tunis was a social democrat, and he's sort of like looking at Hobbes, you know, as somebody who's a precursor of modern thinking, who's a materialist scientist, and whose ideas uh, point in some kind of egalitarian individualist direction. Okay, now that that is also the view that is taken by many paleoconservatives, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, you know Hobbes is a modernist, and uh, uh, he has rejected you know, medieval universals uh, quite consciously. He's anti-Aristotelian. Um, and his he also develops a social contract theory, uh, which is further developed in the work of John Locke. Um, and in this sense, he is responsible for a materialist atomistic view of human society, uh, 
which breaks from medieval and ancient standard. This, of course, is an idea also found in uh, Leo Strauss, uh, who has his notion that Hobbes is influenced by Epicureans, by ancient Epicureans. And some, some of the, uh, the arguments made by Strauss, I think, are very convincing. They did Epicureans and cites them in his work. Um, but I, I think most of, most of these people would agree, most of the people within the school, whether they're on the right or left, see in Hobbes, you know, a modernist, a modern thinker who breaks, consciously breaks from medieval thought, uh, attacks Aristotelianism, attacks scholastic thinking, um, and is heavily influenced by the scientific revolution of the 16th century. Um, and is very much of a materialist and a nominalist in philosophy. He rejects universals. And some of these things do come up, I think, in Elements of the Law, which he publishes in 1640, uh, and certainly in uh, Leviathan, which is, comes out in 1651. Um, I think it's possible to see these, uh, these anti-medieval tendencies in his work. On the other hand, I, I think those who have argued that Hobbes is really a very conservative thinker who was influenced by medieval and ancient thought uh, in ways that his, uh, some, some of his analysts or critics do not fully understand, uh, also have an argument on their side. Um, and of course, in England, you have people like Howard Warned in Francis Hood, and then of course, Carl Schmidt, um, trying to present you know, Hobbes as a conservative thinker. Um, I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle, although I lean a bit more toward um, the Warned in Hood Schmidt interpretation of Hobbes. I, I think there are conservative elements that are very hard to overlook. Um, you know, he, he is a, I suppose, a monarchist by preference. Um, and, you know, he defends the institution of monarchy, although not quite in the same way as Robert Filmer and more traditional monarchists of the time. Um, he is, uh, he also is always invoking Christianity, God, his belief in Jesus Christ. He comes through, and I'm, I'm not sure that, that we can simply dismiss all these references uh, as an attempt to hide his atheism. Uh, although he is a materialist <clears throat> and may well have had a materialist conception of God and a very unorthodox view of Christianity, an unorthodox uh, of, a form of Christianity. But I think one cannot overlook these aspects of his thought. And, you know, he was quite willing to serve kings. He, he liked monarchies mm -hmm. uh, and praises them in, in his, his writing. So I, th I think in, in all these uh, aspects of his thought, one can find um, the, uh, the, the, the kind of conservative Schmidt that, that um, or the conservative Hobbes that Schmidt and other thinkers um, discern. Finally, I would say his view of human nature is not at all like Locke's. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he has an Augustinian view of human nature. Men are, uh, although he doesn't use theological terms, uh, people are nasty, they're brutal, they're cowardly. He is not presenting a favorable view of human nature, right? Or even a neutral view of human nature. It, it, is, it, it is one that seems to be heavily influenced by Calvinism or Augustinianism. Uh, and of course, he was raised in that tradition. So uh, that's something I keep pointing to. So when Schmidt says that, you know, there are two types of political thinkers, those who believe that human nature is good or perfectible, 
and those who believe that, that human nature is permanently depraved, and he puts Hobbes in the second category. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think this is true. Uh, also, you have to um, look at the fact that social contract theory develops in the 16th century among Scottish Presbyterians uh, who hardly believe in the goodness of human nature, you know, um, but they're really arguing against uh, against monarchism, against monarchs who impose an established church other than their own on the population. Uh, and of course, some of the Spanish Jesuits also developed social contract theory, but I, I think in the formulation in which you find it with Hobbes, um, and here I would agree with the English historian Trevor Roper, there are a lot of medieval elements that are still there. Mm-hmm. You know, at most you can say he's a transitional thinker. Somebody like Locke is much more of a modernist than Hobbes. Mm-hmm. How important is it to understand the uh, like the, the Civil War, the crisis in, in England to properly understand Hobbes? Uh, you know, because a lot of people think mm-hmm. in terms of like abstract political theory, but Hobbes seems like someone who is uh, trying to employ the tools that he had to solve a certain crisis in England. And that was sort of his uh, his operating objective. Yeah. Yeah, first, let me say by way of qualification, I know you're not a great admirer of the Puritans. I was defending them. <laughs> um, I'm not really a great admirer of the English Puritans. I do admire the American Puritans, and I admire their uh, their work in building up New England and their high regard for education, their educational system, and so forth. Um, and, you know, their, uh, the way they sort of anticipate bourgeois values that I respect. Um, many of the Puritans in England strike me as quite nutty, you know, and the, the attempt to, uh, you know, make sure that the king's children believe in double predestination and so forth, it seems to me to be an extravagant position that they take, you know, in parliament. And I can actually sympathize. Uh, I, I might have sympathized with the king if he were a bit more reasonable mm-hmm. uh, with Charles I. Uh, it's sort of hard just for me to sympathize with either group in the English Civil War. But um, there's no question that Hobbes was influenced uh, by living in an age of religious war. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, religious wars are not just going on, you know, in Europe uh, or in England in the 1640s. You have the religious wars in France from the 1570s down to 1594, right? Mm-hmm. With the, the crowning of Henry IV, who becomes a Catholic in order to take Paris. Um, future Henry IV, he's André de Bourbon. Uh, but, you know, his, he converts to Catholicism in order to be able to, to rule France, but has Calvinist ministers. Um, so there's religious war there. There's religious wars going on all over the place. And of course, in Germany, you have the Thirty Years' War, right? Which are the, which you know, which lands up wiping out forty percent of the population of Germany. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know, once that is over, you have religious, or even simultaneously with that, you have relig- wars in England. Some of which, you know, uh, some of that struggle, that strife, does reflect religious difference. Right, particularly on the the side of the Puritans, who are not just Puritans. I mean, they have all of these kooky religious minority. They have the diggers and the levelers and others for fighting with them. So, I mean, obviously, Hobbes is reacting Mm -hmm. to the destruction of sovereignty because of religious difference. Right. And so, I mean, you you cannot ignore this. This is why he is so uh, insistent that there should be no Christian commonwealth. You may have Christians living in a commonwealth, but there should not be a Christian. And even if you have a Muslim ruling over you and you're a Christian, you owe obedience to your sovereign, even if he's not a Christian. 
these are all attempts, one might say, to, to neutralize the religious fanaticism, or what he saw as religious fanaticism in his own age. Would you consider this a trend towards secularism? Yeah, I, th- I think it is um, uh, in the in the long run. You know, I'm not saying that uh, you know that Hobbes is a secularist, and you know, in the modern modern sense, uh, he just wishes to keep religion religious division mm. from destroying his own country and destroying other countries. But I do think, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. He he, he saw he didn't see secularization as like a totally like anti-Christian project, but he saw it as something that the sovereign needed to transcend religious mm-hmm. factionalism. Yeah, I don't think he could have conceived of living in a society that was not Christian, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And uh, I think all the references, you know, as part of the natural law, accepting Jesus Christ as our savior. And so, I don't think that this is simply thrown in, you know, to, as protective coloration. I think he did see himself, at least culturally, as a Christian. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, one, one of the problems I have with Straussians in my book on Strauss, um, I really don't think all these people back then were modern. As I say, they, they were not Jewish atheists living in, Chicago, in an apartment in Chicago or whatever the Straussians are yeah. or became. I mean, they were people of their time. And they, these were a time when people, were, you know, identified themselves as Christian, at least in Europe. So, um, you know, I, uh, I don't think Hobbes could have conceived of living in a, a commonwealth that was not Christian, even though it would not call itself a Christian commonwealth. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about Hobbes and his view of, of the sovereign. Like, what does that mean to him and, and what, what political role is the sovereign playing? Yeah, the, the, of course, the sovereign for him is somebody who stands out of the, uh, the social contract. Hmm. He's still in he's still in a state of nature, right? Because in in his notion of the social contract, the people who wished um, to protect themselves come together and ask the sovereign to rule them, right? In return for which they give up their natural liberty. So the sovereign stands out. He's not bound by the rules of the social contract in a sense, uh, but you do not owe him obedience if he does not protect you. This is interesting because you know the, the the impulse of of what I think of modern liberalism, even libertarianism, mm-hmm. is the king, the political actors, they have to submit to the transcendent law. They all are under the law, but mm-hmm. it seems like for Hobbesianism, the law is actually a product of their political decision making. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Hobbes says, you know, what is uh, what is just or what is unjust is we cannot even judge. Uh, until we have a sovereign and a law, mm-hmm. because in a state of nature, anything you do is sort of just. I mean, it's like everybody's for himself. So, so the uh, so the political is more foundational than the legal for him. Oh, absolutely. And this plays into the debates between um, what's his name, Hans Kelsen and, and and Carl Schmidt. Right. Can you tease out that distinction between Schmidt and Kelsen, and and how it maybe relates to this? Yeah, I, I, well, I, I think what Kelsen does, Kelsen is viewed as a neo-Kantian, though I've, I've never been able to figure out how a neo-Kantian like Kelsen is Kantian, because the Kant assume, Kant assumes that there is a rational law that is knowable to us and which is universal, mm-hmm. whereas for Kelsen, all legality is artificial, right? We, we devise a law and a system of sovereignty under which we 
decide to live, then we all agree to live by those rules. So it's it's sort of, it's not, I don't see really Kantianism there. I see a, a form of, uh, uh, of just unlimited, unrestricted uh, contract, contractualism. It's just, you all, you all agree to live by the fake, by the following fake rules that you give yourself in Kelsen. Mm-hmm. So everything is, is really artificial. Um, and uh, I, I think the, the argument that Schmidt ends up making against Kelsen um, is that there really is no authority. Um, um, and, you know, we do not agree. Uh, authority is totally artificial. And we are only bound by this because we decide to create this authority for ourselves. And there really is no sense of the political. There's, there's really no, um, uh, no sense of unity. Uh, now, you can say that it is strange to invoke Hobbes, you know, against Kelsen, mm-hmm. since one can say for Hobbes, the, the, uh, the sovereign state is artificial, right? But not in the same way, because in Hobbes, uh, the relationship is futile. That is to say, I accept so-and-so as my protector in return for which he owes me, you know, I, I will give him support in return for which he protects me. Mm-hmm. So there, there is this almost neo-medieval feudal sense of obligation uh, that lies at the basis of Hobbes as interpreted by Schmidt. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in, the, in, the case, in the case of Kelsen, there's nothing but individuals coming together and deciding to live by these artificial rules and uh, then creating a system of law in which you have a foundational law, mm-hmm. uh, you know, something which is a, a Grund, which is grundsätzlich. It's something that's foundational. Um, and then everything sort of follows from this. We all agree that we're gonna live in a Republic and we're gonna have this constitution and everything is going to fall, but but it's all artificial, right? You know, it's a uh, the Germans would say it's a uh, it's a Kunstregierung. It's an artificial go- government, um, more so than than in Hobbes. But I, I, I this is but the I, I think the uh, the thing about Kelsen that seems to annoy Schmidt in particular is the fact that you you never have a real sense of unity which for Schmidt is important, because Schmidt is actually talking about uh, nations, peoples, and so forth. Remember his famous def- definition in his Verfassungslehre, his work on constitution, is that a constitution is something which an already formed people give itself, mm. right? So the, the people pre-exist the country. We already have this, uh, which by the way is, a notion that you have in America at one point. Remember George Bancroft, the, the early American historian, uh, who was an Galian, uh, said that you know America was a nation before it gave itself a constitution, which I think is some extent also Lincoln's view mm-hmm. that the uh, the nation precedes the constitution, and that's that's also uh, Schmidt's view, mm-hmm. right? That there's there's already formed nation, which gives itself the constitution, that. Uh, uh, um, the the Verfassung des war in state aus einem das war schon formierten das war Volkswillen and there there's national will was already present by the time of the Constitution in Schmidt so uh, Kelsen would say it's all artifice all you know it's contrived <laughs> so, uh, Schmidt would disagree 
but uh, I, I think probably Hobbes would be somewhere in the middle. Mm. Um, and uh, the different the difference with Kelson goes on for many years, and uh, you know, I, I Kelson is actually a formidable legal thinker. I was not aware of this because I became familiar with him through Schmidt's polemics against him. <laughs> and, I've, and since Schmidt is such a compelling writer, I found myself on Schmidt's side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, you know, cause there's, you know, you brought up the Puritans, um, you know, and my distaste for them, you know, just, just to clarify, <laughs> um, I disagree with them on their political theology. You know, I, mm -hmm. I admire their, you know, their, their personal integrity and, you know, some right. of the, their commitments in, in that way, but their political theology, I think is flawed in a way that um, maybe plays into this a little bit because they saw, uh, you know, the, the political actors as being uh, under the authority of the law, sort of this, you know, Rex Lex dynamic, mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Sammy Rutherford and, and all of that too. But I see Hobbes as someone who who really sees the law as the product of, of politics. And mm -hmm. I think there's this instinct in modern American liberalism and modern American conservatism, so-called, that sees the constitution as sort of having this um, transcendent authority mm -hmm. over political actors. But Hobbes would say that's a complete... Um, it's completely artificial to think this way. No, I think you're right about the, the Puritans uh, tend toward a biblical theocracy, although I understand there are distinctions that Calvin and others make between the civil magistrate, but in, in the end, it's the same, I think. And uh, even if they do try to keep these positions of, you know, the, the pastor is different from the magistrate, but then uh, everybody lands up living under biblical law and they're part of the covenant in order to be citizens. Mm -hmm. So you do come up with something like a, a theocracy under the under the Puritans, um, but would Hobbes? But would, but but Hobbes would say that even if you deny the existence of a political sovereign, um, you haven't really eradicated him. Like mm -hmm. in some ways, he's proto Schmidtian in the sense that someone has to be making decisions, someone has to be watching for that exception, and they are the sovereign. Yeah, that's the 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 decisionism, which I think you have in both that. You know, there's somebody who's making there's somebody who's who's sovereign who's making the decisions. Uh, by, by by the way, that that I think is one of the mysteries of Joe Biden's governing. <laughs> that you know he's not the sovereign. <laughs> the question is, you know, right. who is the sovereign, right? Right, right. Yeah. In a traditional society, you have the sovereign. Yeah, <laughs> you, I, I, you have a you know a, a demented, senile, corrupt uh, pol politician. What you're you know, saying, what you're saying, head. Paul. You're saying that Joe Biden is not the world's spirit on horseback. No, no, he's certainly not. That. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a funny image to, to conjure up. <clears throat> so, okay, so so Hobbes is sort of the the philosopher. So, do you think that Hobbes was creating some new interpretation of how society should be, or do you think he was interpreting what was already there under people? People didn't recognize it. like you had Christendom that had existed for a thousand years mm -hmm. almost at, at that time. And people um, hadn't recognized the fact that underlying this this traditional legal, uh, you know, scholasticism, there actually was a political reality maybe that was that was not identifiable. People didn't recognize it, and he was trying to draw that out in the midst of a crisis. Yeah, no, I I think a lot of this comes out of the investiture controversy in the Middle Ages, right? And and, and the battle between emperors and popes and so forth, or between churchmen and lay rulers and temporal rulers, that you know one could not be sure what the locus of sovereignty was, and I mean something like the De Monarchia, written by Dante um, at the end of the 13th century, I think it's the end of the 13th century, uh, is an attempt to argue that 
you know, what, whatever promise of an afterlife the church may may give us, it is we, we, it, it is a temporal sovereign who is to exercise sovereignty in this world, and the one he chooses is really the German emperor, mm-hmm. um, you know, to protect uh, the Italian city-states and their government. But uh, I think this battle goes on for a very long time. And, uh, and of course, the church is going to lose its uh, political power um, by, by the end of the Middle Ages. You have the, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Babylonian captivity for 100 years, then the Nocho, who is the pope, and then the popes become very much subject of the Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, so the, qu- the question remains, what is to be the locus of sovereignty? And the, the attempt by Henry VIII and by Elizabeth I, you know, to, uh, to an act of supremacy, to make the monarch the ruler of the church in England, one might say, is a, seen as a necessary step right. Uh, right. toward that. And um, I, think, I think what Hobbes is doing is trying to protect that act, in a sense. He's trying to protect the, uh, the role that is assumed by the monarch or by the sovereign you know, against church interference or against the, and especially against the interference of religious minorities. Mm-hmm. It's not that he's a big fan of, he, he, he dislikes religious minorities intensely because right. he thinks they're troublemakers and he dislikes the Presbyterian church, you know, right. which is the state church in Scotland, but which he does not want to see take any power in England because he's afraid they, they're going to try to control the, the monarch or the mm-hmm. sovereign too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, he, I think he, uh, you know, just sees this as a source of religious disunity. Uh, he, um, he, he's not really against a state church as long as the monarch can control it. Um, when, when it, the when he, you know, the, the last part of Leviathan, when he talks about the kingdom of darkness, uh, he said, well, you know, th- th- this is the Catholic church he's described. I mean, this is the way he makes it appear. Mm-hmm. But it actually could be the Anglican Church or the Anglo-Catholics, whom he doesn't like either, because he, you know, they they remind him too much of the Roman Catholics, and the trouble they're causing. Well, and uh, also in the case of Charles the First, he went pretty far trying to accommodate the High Church Anglicans and drove other people away, drove right. other Anglicans away. So he's not really against he's not really against the state church. He just wants one that is politically useful. It is not going to drive away uh, the subjects. Well, this is, you know, this is kind of into my field of interest a little bit, you know, his relation to Richard Hooker and people like that, because Hooker was arguing that you, you know, you needed the monarch to be the representative of the good mm-hmm. of the of the order of the social order. Right. You know, and you couldn't have an independent church because the, it was sort of subversive of the interests mm-hmm. of the, mm-hmm. the integrity of the order. Um, so. Do you think that Hobbes, so Hobbes in that way is, is very much in the Calvinist line of thinking? Yeah, I, I, I suppose he is, it, but you know, he, it depends on which Calvinist. Um, <laughs> sure. You know, the, the Pur- Puritans don't like monarchy. <clears throat> well, they're, no, they're and this is Republicans. <laughs> well, this is part of this is part of that debate because you know who who is Calvin and what side would he have taken? I mean, the Anglicans who were defending royal supremacy were claiming Calvin just as much as as a lot of the Puritans were. Well, well no, Calvin supports a monarchy. Calvin is definitely a monarchist. <laughs> yeah. Although he's willing yeah. to live with the Republic, but he has nothing against monarchy. And the uh, uh, and the early Calvinists like Bayes and others would you know, willing to accept monarchy. 
the with the Puritans, though, you get a group that becomes increasingly Republican mm-hmm. and uh, very, very much opposed to monarchy. What are the differences between Hobbes' defense of monarchy and the divine right, like Filmer tradition? <clears throat> well, <clears throat> Hobbes is not really making a divine right argument. Uh, Filmer is. Right. And of course, the divine right argument is accepted in England for a very long time, almost down to the 19th century. <laughs> um, uh, although it doesn't, you know, it, it, they, still, they still have a restricted parliamentary monarchy, but the king is described as, uh, in a sense, almost being above the law and being designated for a position by his position by God. And this goes out throughout the 18th century. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> People like to, you know, li- like to use divine right monarchy language. But it does not mean the same thing it meant at the time of Henry VIII or Louis XIV. So, you know, it, it, it's divine right monarchy within, um, you know, an institutionalized situation in which the king does not really exercise anything like absolute power anymore. And even, even, even in the uh, coronation ceremony, you've got something that sounds like divine right, you know, but, but in effect is, you know, th- that does not bring that kind of power with it. But um, uh, I, I don't think Hobbes particularly wanted to, I mean, unless, unless it was some kind of just rhetoric, kind of rhetorical veil for, um, you know, for what you would say, you know, something, something about politics mm-hmm. <laughs> more than theology. <clears throat> but, uh, you know, to, to him, the justification for any kind of religious institution or institutionalized religion was political. Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh and I, I think at the at the end of the day, he probably regarded Christianity as a private thing. Like when he tells you, you know, there's there should not be a Christian commonwealth, but there should, you know, Christians are fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't think he really treats Muslims or Jews or other the same way he treats Christians. I mean, and by Christians, I think he means Protestant Christians. Mm-hmm. You, know, you have in, in England. So I, I I don't I don't think divine right monarchy, in the sense that it was practiced by Louis the Fourteenth. Right, you know, was what he had in, had in mind. <clears throat> what lessons can Hobbesian thinking teach us today? You know, what what types of myths about the American experiment can uh, Hobbesianism help correct? Um, yeah, I, I think what you're referring to this is almost a kind of religion of democracy that we now have, or the religion of human rights, <clears throat> um, and that this this interferes with the exercise of political sovereignty. In the case of the United States, you know, I, I think that the uh, the exercise of political power and these myths that uh, you and I have criticized are so intertwined that I'm not quite sure I know how, know how to disentangle them at this point. But uh, I, I think reminding people uh, of Hobbes and even Schmidt, you know, to say Schmidt joined the Nazi party or something, you know, not to mention his name, but certainly Hobbes, uh, attempt to treat politics as something which uh, does not, uh, you know, should not be controlled by democratic political theology, as I argue my book on Schmidt, would be a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think this has been done by, by very, someone like uh, George Kennan, I think, devoted most of his life to doing this, you know, and although he did well for himself, I don't think he was very successful you know, in getting American government and American media to think differently about politics. Um, so it may be too late for that. Right. It seems like Hobbes would um, 
he would not buy the myths of American democracy. I mean, we're told that the American uh, state is basically, uh, you know, represents the interests of of the people. You know, it represents, you know, the mm-hmm. the interests of of rights and liberty, and and it's very ideologically oriented. I think Hobbes would have a much more critical view of that myth, and he would yeah. he would look at politics in America as sort of, um, you know, much more ruthless than you know than subscribing to this idea that you know all the myths that the the, the regime wraps around itself are, are 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 indeed myths, and they are basically just rationalizations of its own power. Yeah, but there are also myths that people accept, and which people expect to be made the moral basis of foreign policy. And this distinguishes us from other societies. For instance, the Dutch in the 19th century were were devoutly Calvinist. They had a Calvinist king. They did not create a foreign policy um, shaped around Calvinist theology. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Look at other countries, you know, England has an, well, I don't know how important they were established churches by the 19th century, but they do have one. You know, and occasionally they'll, they'll say that things are Christian and they use the word Christian you know, very broadly as being good. Uh, you know, we, we're opposed to allowing Hindus to throw, you know, to throw wi- widows on their husbands' funeral pyres because we're Christians. So mm-hmm. it means that we're civilized in some sense. But there was not an active theological foreign policy uh, of the kind, let's say, you have in Spain in the 16th century, right, when you have counter-reformation Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Generally, by the way, generally Protestants don't do things like this. You get this in the, the Counter-Reformation. You know, Pro- Protestants are interested in having state churches. You know, the Swedes may become Lutherans. They don't run around trying to, you know, make Asians, make other people Lutherans, conquering Africa in the name of Lutheranism. Or any, oh, they are Lutherans. Mm-hmm. So uh, and they probably think that in some ways their eternal salvation is bound up with Lutheran theology. But the United States is different. It is a political theological empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how we even disentend. It's, it's, it's much worse now than it was 50, 60 years ago, because, you know, we want to bring LGBT to the entire world. And, uh, you know, we give Ukrainians help in a war, but we want them to have gay marriage, you know, because this mm-hmm. is our religion, gay marriage, uh, part of our religion. So whatever version of democracy prevails in the United States at a certain point becomes part of, is a political theology that becomes inextricably bound up with our foreign policy. I think it's disastrous, but I have no idea, as I said, I have no idea how you can disentangle the two at this time. Do you think Americans and American political theorists have a deficient understanding of a political sovereign? No. (laughs) No, not at all. But I'm. But who who does? Do the English? Do the French? <laughs> who does at this point? No, I, I I think we're expecting these people to think in early modern European terms. They don't. I think mm-hmm. we're beyond that. Now, I would agree with you. It would be better if we, you know, if the old the old way of thinking were still around. It's not. Yeah. So you know, one of the questions I have is, you know, what do we do at this point when we have these these bizarre political religions? you know, which are, you know, uh, shaping our, our reality, our political reality, our foreign policy. I have no idea what you do at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Steve, I, I think it's almost like a child who puts his finger near fire. When it gets too close, you can hope that the child draws back his fingers. 
Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I always had this, not always, but I've recently had this instinct that Americans have a very deficient view of the sovereign. That's kind of because, you know, they they allow these so-called private institutions, mm-hmm. these technical, you know, technological mm-hmm. companies, these financial companies to basically uh, you know, run roughshod around, you know, American rights and American way of life, do whatever they want, because mm-hmm. we're not willing to give to the political entity uh, the ability to make decisions about these things. Yeah, but who is the political entity? Is it the deep state? Is it Christopher Wray? Um, is it uh, Biden's hidden sovereign advisors, <laughs> the but- names of which we don't even know? You know, we're not quite sure where where's political sovereignty even lies um, outside of certain institutions, the, the media, you know, there seems to be a, uh, uh, a conglomeration of institutions that sort of glob together, uh, which control everything and push us in a certain direction. Um, we don't really have sovereign authority in the sense in which, uh, in the sense in which Schmidt spoke about, or Hobbes spoke about it. That seems to be my... Someone like Alexander Hamilton <laughs> wanted to. Right. Wanted that seems to be part of my point. My part of my instinct is we have a you know deficient. We don't we don't know where the sovereignty lies, um, and therefore we're uncomfortable with the idea of a political solution to some of these problems. Yeah, I mean, you look, you look at what happened to uh, uh, to Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he never really exercised that much sovereignty, but he was seen as a threat to the conglomeration of interests that were running the country. So they made sure they destroyed him. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that one might say is, is a new form of sovereignty. It's more diffuse. Um, it is ideologically driven, you know, in a way that's destructive of civil society. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the question is, you know, how can you control it or in any way restrict its powers at this, time, at this point? Mm-hmm. So if you had to make a decision on, if someone asked you, you know, is Hobbes a liberal or a conservative, you know, how would you answer that? Well, by our standards, he is uh, a thorough fascist reactionary. I mean, <laughs> looking at him from... <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, the uh, uh, one might say the norm is uh, Joe Biden or somebody on CNN, or you know, I mean, but by, by that, you know, that 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 has become the new political norm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he has, uh, as far as I know, he made gender distinctions. He did not think men could give birth. Uh, you know. Right. By our standards, Karl Marx is a, is a is a, an ultra reactionary, <laughs> right? So yeah, so he's but he so he would be more concerned about the integrity of the social order than he would like some absolutist conception of individual rights. That's true. Yeah, yeah. So that would definitely put him more on the right, a traditional rightist. Yeah, no, I I think if, if we're trying to figure out where he goes, uh. He is a rightist. I think he's he certainly influences the authoritarian right in Europe. I mean, mm-hmm. people took him seriously. Um, I, I, and occasionally, he seems to be less important for the left than than uh, John Locke. Mm. I mean, someone like John Rawls comes up with a whole, you know, theory of uh, uh, social relations based on Locke. It's pretty hard to do that with Hobbes. Now, I know there are people on the left, you know, who claim to be Hobbesian going back to Ferdinand Tunney's, but uh, I, I think he's less congenial. He'd be less, much less congenial. Now, I know there are groups like Southern conservatives and others who are always beating up on Hobbes, um, but you know, I, I think that uh, they've chosen the wrong target. I mean, Hobbes is not in any way a danger, nor has he created our, our modern you know, 
monolithic ideologically leftist state. I mean, I, I don't think it's because he uh, he's addressing very different problems at a different point in time. And I think this historicist position is, is, is important here. You cannot, you know, just pull a thinker out of the set this 17th century where Hobbes belongs and say, you know, it just, there, there, was, there was a total disconnect, one I'd say between Hobbes and uh, the American uh, political situation. Um, the um, uh, Hobbes notion, I would agree Hobbes notion of sovereignty is, is certainly defensible. Um, but it's very hard to convince people of this since we have a very different view of, of political organization and we have right. a very different ruling class. This was part of my point earlier is like if you if you go to Hobbes to try to find someone to justify the ideal regime for all time, you're going to misunderstand Hobbes because that's not Hobbes's project. Hobbes's project was solving particular problems and particular crises within his situation. You know, I see where you're coming from because what, you, what you're suggesting is that we have to all agree on a sovereign instead of having all these floating uh, uh, powers or uh, you know self-declared powers, whether it's the deep state, the FBI, CNN news, whatever it is, uh, universities. There has to be somebody in charge. Mm-hmm. Somebody in charge of the lunatic asylum by now. Well, this and, is this is why there's an appeal. <laughs> This is why that phrase is floating around of a Protestant Franco, someone to subsume authority and be the decisionist. No, I would be delighted if we had somebody like that. I mean, you know, right. lay all my cards on the table. <laughs> I don't think we're going to get a Protestant, Protestant Franco. Sure. You know, but but short of having that decisionist, so mm-hmm. someone that can right. determine the state of emergency and make political decisions at odds with our own you know, crisis who who kind of sees himself as transcending it and solving it um, is something that Hobbes would admire. You know, we're, we're sort of looking at something like the authoritarian right and saying, <laughs> is it possible to establish it? And my response is good luck. I, whether it's possible or whether it's admirable or different topics. Right, <laughs> right, right. Any last thoughts on Hobbes and maybe his, his role in the development of political thought? Yeah, I think he has a profound influence on political thought, not so much in the United States as in, as in Europe and the continent. And this, I think, is 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 interesting because although we say you know social contract theory in some ways goes back to Hobbes, although it goes back much earlier, um, uh, I don't think Americans have ever have really been influenced very much by by Hobbes. And I remember writing my book on Leo Strauss. Uh, there was a remark by Walter Burns that people in the state of Virginia who disestablished the church in the 1780s or 1790s, whenever they did this, um, were Hobbesian. And I couldn't imagine how they'd be Hobbesian. I mean, actually, it was the Baptists who put pressure you know, to do this uh, for, for actually for sectarian reasons. But and then uh, Jefferson defends this as, as part of his position on religious freedom. But I don't think Hobbes has ever had much influence in the United States. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Um, uh, although my friend Barry Shane assures me that Locke did not have much influence either. And that, you know, people, people had developed a natural right theories independently of Hobbes, rather of Locke. I mean, Locke, Locke was not a big number in the United States in the 1780s or 1790s. People didn't read very much of Locke. But natural rights theory... Uh, of a Lockean kind, you know, had uh, become prevalent in the United States. 
um, I don't I don't think Hobbes has ever had that uh, his theories have had that following except by way of John Locke or people who are influenced by Locke. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, no, I, I agree with you, and I think it's much more of our American instinct to see natural law, natural rights, things like mm -hmm. that as as being transcendent above the political. Whereas Hobbes would swap that around. I mean, do you think anyone like Hamilton would be more Hobbesian? Oh yeah, no, no. I th 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 there is a kind of realism about Hobbes that you find right. in Locke. Um, for instance, when you talk about the state of nature in Locke, he really seems to have in mind people living in North America and uh, Native American tribes mm. or something like that. Uh, but he really thinks there there was a state of nature, and of course the. The levelers who read his work also believe that there was a state of nature somewhere. In the case of Hobbes, I do not have to assume that people are living in this primitive state in, of nature. For Hobbes, the state of nature exists wherever civil society breaks down. Hmm. And wherever I think I'm living in the state of nature, because there's, if I go into New York City, I'm in the state of nature. Mm -hmm. Or, or uh, you know, North Philadelphia. I'm in the state of nature. There's no problem. Right. right. <laughs> Top state of nature. Um, I think in the case of Locke, he, he is assuming an anthropological detail that's just not there. You know. Right. So uh, uh, I think Hobbes' state of nature makes much more sense to me. Mm -hmm. And also, when he says, you know, that sovereignty depend that depends on whether the sovereign protects me. Right. You know. And this, I think, is a very realistic criterion. I don't understand. Like, so Hobbes. So one of the things I don't understand about Hobbes is how he would conceive of like people giving up their liberties, you know, for the sovereign. He doesn't see that as something that actually happened. That like you need you require individual consent in order to have legitimacy, right? Uh, not necessarily. Right. That, that, <laughs> I mean, that sounds that sounds more that. that sounds more libertarian. To me. No, 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 no. What, what he says is that you can have acquired sovereignty. Somebody can come and conquer my land. Mm -hmm. And if I choose to live there, I have tacitly given consent to the government okay. in return for its protection. Or, you know, if I just stay somewhere and uh, let's say Oliver Cromwell is going to be succeeded by Charles II, right? Mm -hmm. um, then I'm tacitly agreeing in this, you know, version of the social contract. Uh, do you think it's? Do you yeah, think it's I mean, sort of similar to like um, you know Burke Burke's idea of consent? Yeah, I, th I think Burke would probably lean more in that direction okay. because you know you, you do not have people coming out of a, a physical state of nature where they're living you know in some primitive state and say you know uh, like like an English men's club you know we agree to this and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that. so it's in 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 Hobbes it can be it's it's ta it could be tacit mm -hmm. consent. Mm -hmm. Good. Well, um, I think that exhausts the Hobbesian revolution chapter of the of Carl Schmidt book. And this is um, I like this book. I always come back to it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I Hobbes is someone who's sort of off the radar for anyone who's interested mm -hmm. in traditionalist political thought. Um, do you think that's because of his alleged materialism? Yeah, and and also because in the United States you have um all these conservative, particularly Catholic conservatives who. Um, mm. You know, insists that uh, Schmidt was giving up the Middle Ages, or, or Hobbes was giving up the Middle Ages. He he rejected the scholasticism, uh, natural law traditions as they understood them, um, and uh, also because you have the libertarians, you know, mm. who don't like Hobbes because uh, of his stress on sovereignty. Right. Right. 
Good. Well, I hope people benefited from that. I certainly mm -hmm. did. Um, and then there's so much more to talk about in, in the Schmidian uh, mindset that you've adopted over the years. So Hobbes is a, is a consequential thinker within that tradition. So I appreciate the conversation.